Quad Vancouver free game, post game, every game presented by Bodog from Sports Odds to free casino games. Make a play at Bodog.net. Wadden and J Pat here with you once again as the Stanley Cup playoffs continue to roll on J Pat and the offseason rolls on here for the Canucks. And it seems like every single day we get little pieces of information from the Canucks. I like that. It keeps us busy, of course. But the Abbotsford Canucks season has now come to a close. Locker clean out for them end of year meetings, all of that. We heard from Orion Johnson yesterday. We'll hear some quotes from him to start, but you know, we talked about it yesterday, just as a whole, how big the Abbotsford AHL affiliate has been for the Canucks. But not only that, like as I hear Ryan Johnson speak and, you know, rave about the Sedines and just, just the whole, everything that sort of come together with this AHL franchise, like, I feel like they've really turned a corner as an organization in terms of, you know, having all their ducks in a row, if you will. Always felt like Utica was just so far away. And now it just feels like they're sort of part of the family, if you will. Yeah, I think that's probably a pretty good explanation, actually, or a good uh, way to describe it, that uh, when they were in Utica and you used to hear players themselves would say, like, we didn't know if anybody from Vancouver was coming in, if anybody from Vancouver was in the building on a given night. You just kind of kept your head down and did your thing and hoped that people were paying attention. But yeah. here in Abbotsford, uh, we saw it all the time, whether it was Patrick Alvin, Emily Castingay, Rick Tockett at the end of the season made at least one trip out to Abbotsford. The Sedines on the ground there, you know, taking part in practices, so working with players, but watching games, evaluating, and uh, Cami Granato, on and on it goes. I just think for a prospect, you just want to believe that you're going to get an, an opportunity, that if you play hard, you do the right things, you you play the way they want, you want to believe that you're going to get a shot. And I think in Utica, you know, I mean, obviously, Ryan Johnson was their hands on the coaching staff, all those types of things. But I can understand a little bit of the frustration on the players front that they just didn't really know if they were being watched closely and properly by the organization. And as we know, Utica didn't produce an awful lot of players for the Vancouver Canucks, produced way more coaches with Travis Green and Nolan Baumgartner and Jason King. Obviously, Thatcher Demko came through there. But other than that, I mean, really hit and miss when it came to graduating guys from the American Hockey League to the NHL through the Canucks system. Now, they still got work to do in Abbotsford. I, I don't want to oversell this at all, but they have turned the roster over. They've gotten younger out there. They add an Aturatu at the trade deadline in the Horvat deal. And you know, Linus Carlson looks like a guy that's going to knock on the door. Archie Baines, we saw all those defensemen, some of them you know, are veterans by HL standards, but they got their opportunity when Canucks ran into injury problems at the NHL level. It's just a better environment. And speaking of that environment, I mean, the buy-in from the Fraser Valley, the game that I got to, game three, you know, I mean, people were into it. I think more than anything, it's their team now, right? I think the Fraser Valley, like people of Abbotsford and the surrounding communities, like they believe that that's their team. Yeah. And then an hour down the highway, you've got the big league club. And so it's just this integration that is there. It feels so much more natural than having your farm system on the other side of the continent. I like how you brought up the fact that there was coaches that were groomed through there, maybe not necessarily players that were developed through Utica. And of course, Dr. Demko being the outlier there. But now we're starting to see not only the players that are starting to, you know, sort of find their way through Abbotsford and hopefully up into Vancouver, but perhaps in the front office too. When you hear Ryan Johnson speak, do you not hear a guy that perhaps is on a trajectory to be an NHL GM? Yeah, I mean, he is highly regarded in hockey circles. I think he's highly regarded internally by the Vancouver Canucks. Now, anytime you mention that, people are like, yeah, but what's he done? Look, my dealings with RJ have been terrific. I have always found him to be an engaging guy, pretty honest and available, all those types of things. I think he's got a sharp hockey mind. Man, he's invested, you know, spent time in Utica, now spending time on the ground in Abbotsford. And so, yeah, I think when the time is right, and whether it's in the Canuck organization or there's another team that comes sniffing around. I remember last year, ESPN in the offseason wrote a story of people to keep an eye on in hockey, and and he was on the list, and I think rightly so. I, I think uh, he has proven to be a pretty astute judge of, of talent. Again, has the Canuck farm system under his watch graduated a lot of players? No. Is that his fault? No. I mean, most of their high-end first-rounders have bypassed the American Hockey League entirely, and... You know, this has been the issue that there hasn't been a whole lot in the pipeline, but they're starting to address that. And the the new management group, you know, from day one, they they knew that what the Canucks were doing with player development, with the farm team, 
it wasn't good enough. And so they have taken steps to address it. And we've said it before. I'll say it again. I think Jeremy Colleton was a, mm-hmm. a masterstroke by the organization. So I think they've got a NHL coach who's coaching at the American Hockey League level as he tries to work his way back up to the, to the big leagues. And then around that, just the infrastructure, the player development, the, the things that they're now making available, the resources for these teams or for these players, you know, they've got everything that they can want. And so then it's on them to use those things properly to try to, you know, build their careers to the point where they're knocking on the door of getting that call that they all want. And that is uh, to the National Hockey League. Yeah. And speaking of being, having everything at your fingertips, you've also got the Sedins there as well when it comes to player development. Let's hear from Ryan Johnson as he raved about having the Twins a part of Abbotsford this year. I, I can't tell you how fortunate I feel and, and the how personal they take the future of this organization is you see that every day and having those guys drive out here two, three days a week and be on the ice and a part of our meetings and a resource for these players with a with a genuine interest. To, I had so much fun watching them have fun uh, working with a with a really young team and a young group. And yeah, it it was a huge part of I think our growth and our environment here. And and when you get young players that realize you get two, you know, recently but Hall of Famers that care that much about these players and the future of the organization that resonates huge with uh, with these guys. The little conversations and things that they talk about post-practice or in the gym or around with these guys, uh, it, it means a lot. And not just because of they were great players, because they're great people. And they, they care that much about this group and, and the organization and like I said, I, I feel incredibly fortunate to have them being a part of our team here. I really respect the process that they're taking to get to where they are as well. They're just completely taking their time. But not only that, like they are in the trenches, if you will, in player development. Like some people would say, oh, well, they're they're destined to be the GM, next GM of the team. They're the Sedins, of course. But they're not necessarily taking that path. They're taking the long way. They want to really, like I said, be in the trenches with these players and get there from the ground up. Yeah, you know, sort of forgotten a little bit that when they decided that they wanted to get back into hockey, I mean, they retired in 2018, stepped away, did some of their ultra marathon running and those types of things and spent a little family time. And then they decided collectively that they wanted to get back into hockey. Remember last year, they basically just shadowed the front office and it was Jim Benning and John Weisbrot at the time. And then they were ousted and in came Rutherford and Alvin. And so for the first year back in the business of hockey, those guys were standing in you know, front office meetings, scouting meetings, and those types of things. And I don't know if it was their doing that they decided that, you know what, meetings aren't really for us. This isn't ultimately where we think we can best impact the organization. If I don't know if their voices weren't heard, whatever the case, it was late May last year that the Vancouver Canucks structured, restructured their player personnel department. And that's where the Sedins essentially became part of that player development pipeline. And so you would see them some days they'd be working at Rogers arena with the big league team. But as you heard, Ryan Johnson, two or three days a week, yeah, that's an investment. Like these guys don't need to be in the American hockey league. They didn't want to be, but clearly they want to be. And so it has to start there, you know, with their investment. And it sounds like they were all in. And I just think how cool for a guy like, you know, Linus Carlson, comes over from Sweden to North America, doesn't know anybody. There's language issues, those types of things. You look up and Daniel and Henrik, like these Hall of Famers, these icons are there to be a resource for you. Same with Nils Hoaglander. Like Hoaglander wanted to be in the NHL, but it sounds by all accounts like he accepted the assignment to the American Hockey League, but you've got Daniel and Henrik there as a sounding board. If you need a little pep talk or if you got questions, you know, Archdeep Baines, first year as a pro, grew up in the lower mainland watching the Sedins and now in his first year, as a professional hockey player, he's got these two guys there on the ice, you know, teaching them little t- tricks of the trade. I can't imagine that there are, I can't speak to all of the American Hockey League teams, but pretty safe bet that there aren't Hall of NHL or Hockey Hall of Famers, you know, working day in, day out with American Hockey League players. And that's why I say Jeremy Colleton as an NHL head coach, but in the AHL, and then you got the Sedins down there. They're surrounding their prospects with some pretty good people. And you heard Ryan Johnson say, like, it's not just that they're great hockey players. They're great people. 
And yes. so they bring that every day. And I think it's pretty cool that the Sedin sit in on, you know, scouting sessions in the film room, that they're in the gym with these guys. But most importantly, they're out there on the ice. And we heard about, uh, you know, after practice with a Vasily Pod Colson or whomever. I would think if you're down in the dumps and you're not feeling it, you're lacking confidence, again, just to be able to spend a little time around those two guys who are, you know, remarkably positive individuals and certainly aspired to great heights and reached those heights in the National Hockey League. Pretty cool to have those guys on board for the Vancouver slash Abbotsford Canucks. Yeah, Arsty Baines would have been 10 years old in 2011, <laughs> right? So you can imagine that he was probably pretty invested uh, when it came to the Vancouver Canucks, the Surrey product. First year pro for him, 38 points in 66 games, 13 of those were goals. Of course, he uh, led the WHL in scoring back in 21-22 with 112 points in 68 games. Ryan Johnson was asked about the growth of our steep Baines in his first year as a pro. Well, what a uh, an incredible story with Bainesy, you know, of, of him coming in with the accolades that he did um, and having us kind of communicate to him that we're going to have you produce hopefully by the year, at the end of the year, at the same level you were. We're just going to strip you down completely, rebuild you. You're going to find a complete different way to produce the same way you did in junior. A lot of kids would look at you and tell you you're crazy and, uh, and say, you know, I got this. I know what I'm doing. But Bainsey was vulnerable to it that we, he knew, um, now being a pro and how he was going to have to, play the game and find different ways to get the puck in a stick. Uh, he was a healthy scratch at times earlier in the year, but the way he worked on his game and bought into some of the things and the details and the wall play and managing the puck and the down low play below the tops, of the circles, uh, look at the season that, that he had as a first year player and the growth that he took exponentially throughout the year uh, was is something that, it taught me and something that I can use moving forward to other players that are similar to him that have produced at very high level from wherever they came from and understanding that they're going to have to make some changes to be able to give themselves a chance to play in the NHL. And that's exactly what he's done. Yeah. And it's not a new story. Somebody that gets a ton of points and then has to adjust their game in the NHL. But, you know, for someone like R. Steve Baines to just to hear that from your general manager, that's got to give you a lot of confidence going into year two as a pro. Yeah, and that was one of my takeaways from the game that I went to, game three of that series against Calgary, was they're protecting a one-goal lead in the final minute, and Arsty Baines is out there. Yeah, Just spoke to the trust that Jeremy Colleton had in him and that the body of work over the course of the year had led to him being put in that kind of position. But I love that clip about basically stripping him down, because you're right, you know, for him— as a 20-year-old overager in his final year in the Western Hockey League, we've seen a ton of guys just light up the Western Hockey League. That doesn't always translate to success elsewhere. Uh, you know, you're beating up on 16 and 17, 18-year-olds on a regular basis. Now you're turning pro and you're playing against guys that, you know, in some cases are in the NHL, part-time NHL, you know, close to getting to the National Hockey League, whatever the case. Like, these, this is what they do for a living. And guys that are just physically stronger, and for him to accept that, yeah, Ryan Johnson and the coaching staff, they understood that, you know, there were parts of his game that they liked, but there were also things that he was going to have to do differently. And it sounded like he was a sponge, you know, wanted to be part of that transformation. And again, I think, you know, I don't know that at star level, I don't want people to sort of overhype this guy, but I do think that he projects as a player that's going to make it. He's just one of those guys that I don't think is going to take no for an answer. And he'll play in the National Hockey League. Will he have a long career? Will he be a full-timer? I don't know. But I think as early as next year, it would not surprise me if he gets the call and we see him play some games in the National Hockey League. I like this one from Ryan Johnson as well, because he talked about Christian Willan, and we've talked about how pro scouting was basically something that the Canucks really lacked. They were very poor in that department uh, for years and starting to sort of get themselves back on track. And Ryan Johnson referenced the fact that Christian Willan, of course, played at the University of North Dakota, knew him from there, knew the coaching staff, just thought he needed a different shot somewhere else. 
Clearly that shot worked out for Will Landon this year, considering he took home some hardware in the AHL, got himself back into the NHL as well. Here's Ryan Johnson with high praise for Christian Will Landon. I knew the player type and that we didn't have that type of player in the organization. I knew he was misunderstood. Uh, he played at North Dakota where I played, uh, and I've got a relationship with coaches, you know, vouched for him and the player he was. He was a guy that um, I talked to directly as opposed to his agent. I talked directly to him and said, I just, I know you need somebody to believe in you, and I do. And I think if you buy into what our environment is there in Abbotsford, I think we could change your career. And uh, he did that. He came in with, with an open mind. Um, the professionalism and the approach to the game that we ask of our players here and and you see what happened uh, with what he was able to do for our group and not just the group here in Abbotsford but obviously went up to Vancouver and played uh, uh, an important part for our group there down the stretch and, and it now is somebody that you know we've got under contract to be a part of our organization for the next two years here. Are you surprised by the two-year contract for Willan and just because of the fact that he is 28, he'll be 30 when it's done, you know, where he's, you know, I don't know where if his career took a, a leap up this year, but it, I think it definitely got noticed by others. I mean, the fact that he was able to play in the NHL and we thought played pretty well when he was there. Like, are you surprised that he, they got a commitment of two years out of him or, I mean, it's, it's a good paying job. Like you make $750,000 at any one of your jobs, you're, you're liking it, but perhaps maybe they're, you know, he could have risked an NHL contract after another good year like he had this year. Yeah, I think the surprise for me was that he didn't seem to want to shop himself yeah. on the open market, that clearly he liked they had in Abbotsford, the opportunity. So many of these guys, they want an opportunity. They want to believe that if they play well, that there's an opportunity. And there was for Christian Willannon. And so, you know, I think a couple of years gives him some security that way. I mean, he's been a bit of a hockey nomad, bouncing around, trying to find his place. And then to hear Ryan Johnson you know, the personal touch doesn't go through the agent, goes directly to the player. I believe in you. If you mm -hmm. come here and do this, we think that you can reach this level. Guy was the American Hockey League Defender of the Year, and he didn't play in the AHL after February 15th. So it really was an incredible season. And I think at the very least for the Canucks, like there isn't a risk here because the contract is manageable that, you know, if it's buried in the American Hockey League, it's not counting against the NHL salary cap. But this is a high character individual an achiever, obviously, but you want those kind of guys in your organization for two years. So I don't think there's any risk for the Vancouver Canucks. Like, uh, you know, at the very least, he stays in Abbotsford for two years and can be a mentor. Like, yeah. I think it's valuable to have guys that, you know, have the right attitude. Like, you don't want fading pros, you know, taking up roster spots on your American Hockey League team that are kind of miserable and angry that their career is coming to an end. And Willana's not that guy at all. I got 16 games at the NHL level. Wouldn't surprise me with the cap crunch the Canucks are in if, you know, he gets that many or more. Mobile plays the game, you know, defends with his feet. His skating is pretty good, has the offensive chops. So I can see why the Canucks wanted to commit to him for a couple of years. I think the, the question was, is he going to take this body of work as the American Hockey League Defenseman of the Year and shop himself on the open market? And I'm not suggesting for a sec that he would have been able to break the bank, but there's 32 teams in the National Hockey League. There might have been a nibble or two out there. But clearly it spoke to what he saw here in this organization, yeah. the opportunities he had. And I just think he can be a valuable contributor and mentor, especially as this group gets around to furnishing the pipeline with a few more defensemen, you know, that ultimately are going to work their way to the National Hockey League someday. Yeah, I think that says a lot about Abbotsford, the fact that, you know, he was willing to go those two years because he probably could have shopped himself out there, maybe got a one year at a million somewhere, right? So Again, like that just shows the progress that they've made down in Abbotsford when it comes to players as well. Jet Wu is one of those players that I think surprised both of us to hear that uh, perhaps he would be considered to be playing for the Canucks at some point next year. RJ talked about him and how the huge strides that he's taken uh, this season. Well, fantastic year. I mean, he was such a huge part of our group and in, in forming his identity as a player, um, I think last year was something we really struggled with. But this year, uh, his growth in his game, building his identity as a player, as a as a puck moving, physical, heavy, uh, and contributed offensively as well. Even even played on the second unit power play at times. 
but he's shot himself forward, uh, that's for sure. And I, I felt, you know, had things maybe gone a little differently, uh, he was a guy we were hoping to, to get a chance to play some games up top. But he's put himself in the conversation to come and compete for a spot next year in Vancouver, uh, or worst case, you know, I see him as a guy that's going to play NHL games next year um, because of the growth and how far he came along this year as a player and as a person, as a professional. Uh, it was awesome to see. He'll be 23 in July, and I know how much you love goals from defensemen. <laughs> yeah. He led the Abbotsford Canucks in goals from defensemen with seven. Now, he was second to Will Landon in terms of total points with 21. Not really that you expect Jet Wu to be this big point producer, uh, but here we are. I mean, seven goals from a defender. Again, still only young. He's still just 22 right now. He'll be 23 in July, as mentioned. So, you know, it seems like Jet Wu's kind of been in the organization for a bit because he has. He was a 2018 draft pick. But, you know, not everybody's ascension to the NHL is a, a single line. Sometimes it takes a little while to get there. Yeah. And, you know, when I watched that game last week, the playoff game, you know, I noted he was over on the left side. He's a right shot guy. Uh, but it spoke to me that they wanted him to be able to play in key situations, and they had Noah Juleson on the right side, and Philip Johansson had come over, and he was getting some shifts. Wu played a lot down the stretch. He played big minutes in that uh, that third game of the series against Calgary that I saw. You know, he certainly doesn't project to remain on the left side. I think uh, this organization has shown that uh, there's room for guys on the right. So I would think in a perfect world, he'd slide back to the other side. But, you know, he's rounded out his game. I think uh, funny that you're right. The development path is uh, rarely a straight line. And, you know, there's probably some confidence issues. And, you know, they had moved him up front at times last season where it kind of felt like he got lost in the shuffle. And then you get a coach, coaching change, call it and comes in. You know, you get guys that believe in him, that sort of set him up to play to his strengths. You know, he's a big physical guy. And I remember telling you that, you know, there's just scrums after every whistle at the AHL level. And and he's involved in a lot of them. He takes no crap. And again, I think the Canucks, you know, they need need some of that. So, look, I don't expect that he's going to make this team out of training camp next year. But to hear Ryan Johnson, and Ryan Johnson will have some say. I mean, when the organization is looking for guys that deserve a call-up, have earned that opportunity... You know, it sounds like Jet Wu has put himself back into being a legitimate prospect for the Vancouver Canucks. And so I'll admit, you know, it kind of felt like he was, you know, drifting a little, right? And, you know, good for him. Like, good for him. It sounds like he's put himself back on the path to someday getting an opportunity in the National Hockey League. Yeah, let's keep in mind, too, a 37th overall pick, right? A second rounder back in 2018. And there was... You know, a lot of people that were high on Jet Wu early, but you're right. I, I was blown away when I heard that uh, he was having such, quite the season there. And not only that, might perhaps be able to to get a sniff in the NHL. Lastly, Vasily Podkolzin, of course, was down in a, in Abbotsford, did not play during the playoffs. Here's Ryan Johnson, who says that he was close, just wasn't able to get in there. Yeah, I mean, he was getting closer. I don't want to say he was, he was close. Um, obviously, we would have loved to have him experience what our other players went through. I mean, if you watch what even Niels Hoglander, how much of a, how much he developed as a player and as a person from when he came to us to what he experienced in playoff hockey and the, how hard it was and the, the nastiness and the compete and the fight. I would have loved to have uh, Pods experience that as well because I think what Niels went through is going to change the trajectory of his career. Um, and it would have been outstanding for pods to have that experience uh, as well, but um, it is what it is. It's not, you know, injuries and injuries, There's nothing we could really uh, do about it, but it's, he'll be, I think even him being around and watching these guys battle and fight will, uh, you know, have pods have a different outlook heading into the summer and, uh, obviously, uh, expect big things from him coming in the training camp. Should we be concerned about the numbers down in Abbotsford with Vasily Podkolzin? Just the 18 points in 28 games scored seven goals. Yeah. I, I think, you know, this isn't me being alarmist, but this was a pretty bad year for Vasily Podkolzin 
judged against what he did as a rookie in the National Hockey League with the 14 goals and the way that he finished with such a flourish. And he thought, all right, like this is the guy. If he picks up where he left off, look out. And then it just didn't happen. And we knew that there were confidence issues. We know that the coaching staff didn't have a lot of confidence in him when he played. He was just kind of out there. But he wasn't accomplishing much. So it wasn't a surprise that he got sent down to the minors. And yeah, you would have liked him to have been able to assert himself a little bit more. You know, came back up after the All-Star break. There were moments, but really there wasn't a whole lot to his game and certainly not much in the way of individual statistics. And then he, I still don't know if he jammed his hand or he was skating with Abbotsford. But as Ryan Johnson said, he was getting closer, but he said he didn't want to oversell it there. So it didn't sound like it was touch and go, that it was going to take a little bit more time. So it's disappointing because not only could they have used him, absolutely they could have used him in playoff hockey. You remember last year he got sent down and they lost those two games in Bakersfield and they were done. And he was probably like, what playoffs go? What, what happened? Spends all year in the National Hockey League and then gets the sent to the AHL and the playoffs lasted two games. So, yeah, like, again, this organization cannot afford to whiff on a guy that was the 10th overall pick. Like, there's just so much importance for him to develop, for them to develop him. But, you know, they missed under 10 and they missed on your levy. How is this team going to move forward if... You know, there's more misses than hits in the top 10 of the draft. And, you know, that's kind of where they are. Obviously, Pedersen and Hughes have emerged as stars, but it's not enough to just have those two guys. Like, you need that talent from the top end of the draft. And so here they are again, back in fairly familiar surroundings. Going to pick 11th this time if they hold on to the draft. Like, they need Pod Colson. They need LeCaramacchi, obviously. And then they're going to need whoever they get in this year's first round, but whoever this year is probably a couple of years away. And that's the, that's the downside is that this team is trying to move forward. It's trying to progress. It's trying to get better. And boy, it feels like they are banking on a ton of improvement from within. How much more does Pedersen and, and Hughes have to give? I don't know. Not a lot. I mean, when you look at where their numbers are, they can't, you know, they're not going to up their individual output by 25%. They're just, there's not that kind of room to grow, but there is room for a guy like Vasily Podkoles and a damn, they need him to look a whole lot more like he did in his rookie season than the one, the player that uh, we saw this past year when he gets back to training camp in the fall. Hoaglander, Podkoles, and where do you expect both of them to play next year to start the season? I think Podkoles is going to get every opportunity to be back in the National Hockey League, but so much of it's on him. Hoaglander, I just, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it it feels like the Canucks are going to have to bite a bullet here and attach something to move off some of these contracts. And, you know, that first round pick shouldn't be in play in my world, but I can't sit here and say that it won't be. So for the sake of this argument, if the first rounder is a non-starter, then what other assets do the Canucks have to to attack? And that's where I got like Hoaglander. But this is the crazy part in all of this is if they were able to move off Besser or Garland, either one of them. You're trying to move off those players, not because you don't like the players, you don't like the contracts, but in a perfect world, Nils Hoaglander would then slide right in and replace either one of those guys at a fraction of the cost, and you can probably get the same kind of output. But now we're talking about not only moving Besser or Garland, but attaching a guy like Hoaglander to that player. And so then who fills the hole? How do, as an organization, how do you get better? And that is now becoming, I think, the focus of this conversation in the offseason is like, yeah, they can clear cap space or maybe they can't, but they're going to have to. They have to be cap compliant. But how do you get better? You can't flush another season of Elias Pettersson as a star in the NHL and Quinn Hughes as a star in the National Hockey League. Like, what are we doing here? If you're just spinning your wheels, you know, trying to move off salary, but you're not getting any better. Like the whole idea of this thing is to improve your hockey club so that it can get back to the playoffs and then, you know, incrementally become a contender. But in the issues right now are how do you shed salary so that the league will play next year? Cause right now they're above the allowable cap commitment. Now you're allowed to be there in the off season and they've got some time on their hands, but like that's project. Number one is finding a way to move off some of these salaries so that you have a little bit of flexibility, but even if you know, if they just get if they move off Besser or Garland, like yeah, it creates some cap space, but man, it doesn't create enough to basically be magicians here. So again, it brings it back to improvement from within. That's fine. You can bank on some of that, and you hope that you get some of that. But ultimately, 
how much better does it make the Vancouver Canucks as a hockey club if their only route to improvement is improvement from within? Applewood Auto Group is celebrating 25 years of business, making the car business and our communities better. Applewood offers the best in-class experience, whether you're looking for a car, service, or to join our team. Come find out why it's all good at Applewood. Visit us online at applewood.ca today. The BC Lions are back in the playoffs and hosting the Calgary Stampeders on Saturday, November 4th at BC Place, kickoff at 3.30 p.m. Looking forward to this one, playoff football, BC Place, the Lions and that offense with Vernon Adams at the controls and all of those weapons he has in his receiving core. And you just think about the atmosphere in that building with the fans behind them, the Dome will be rocking, should be a ton of fun. Tickets on sale now at bclions.com and check this out. They start at just 30 bucks. And kids 17 and under can get in for 15. So bring the noise, fill the dome. Well, I'm glad you brought up the salary cap, mm-hmm. J-Pat. And I'm sure it uh, is in Canucks fans' head every single day. And today, maybe it uh, grew a little bit bigger. Because Puckpedia put out their projections for next season, they turned the page. They're looking at the 23-24 season now. Projected cap at 83.5 million. The Canucks are close to 1.6 million over the cap to start the season right now, JPAD. It's them and the Tampa Bay. And the Tampa Bay Lightning have $400,000 of cap space. Right. The Canucks are negative. Minus one point, it's like five nine three, something like right. that. Right. So the Canucks are two million dollars more than the next closest team in terms of cap commitments and allocations for next season already. They're the only team that's above the ceiling. And again, you can be there in the off season, but they have two million dollars more in cap commitments than the Tampa Lightning. And that just again, I don't know if it's the optics of it. Like I think we all knew that they're in sour cap hell, but. The minute Puckpedia posted that and you just thought like, oh my God, like the, the challenges that yeah. it really was a slap in the face, a, a reality check. And, and this is the reality of Patrick Alvin in the Canucks front office. And so, you know, for more than a year now, we've been talking about, oh, is it going to be Besser? Is it going to be Garland? Is it, you know, is there a way that they could move off uh, Tyler Myers? And a year has passed and those three guys and their contracts are all still part of the Canucks. Yes, they moved Bo Horvat and the contract that they couldn't afford to give their former captain, but they didn't create any cap space there because they took back Anthony Bavillier and the $4 million that he's owed. And then they took the first round pick and turned that into Philip Ronick, who, you know, making foreign change this year, but this is the final year of his deal. And then you're looking at, you've traded for him. I assume that they're going to want to sign him long-term. You know, you're going to eat up UFA years for Philip Ronick. All of a sudden, you know, now Bovillier, who knows what his future is, in Vancouver, but you know, he's 4 million Veronics four and change. That's essentially Bohorvat money right there. So they didn't affect any cost savings. Didn't clear up any cap space whatsoever uh, with the one big ticket that they did have. Like they would have been better off just taking back the first rounder and after uh, and it might've looked underwhelming, but in the big picture, that would have created $4 million in cap space at the very least. But what, because, but you could you got to turn around and use that 4 million though. Right. So what do you, you know what I mean? So then you're essentially going for a Heronic type, no? Well, no, they used the first rounder from Heronic, but if they didn't bring back Anthony Bavillier, then who knows what they do with that $4 million. Oh, sorry. Sorry. You said the first round pick and Ratu, no Bavillier. Gotcha. Yes. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, that, that but makes sense. the Islanders sense. had been trying to pedal Bavillier for months and basically found a taker in the Canucks. And yeah. when you looked at, like, look at the Chicago Blackhawks, the way they stripped it all down. And we're talking a lot about Blackhawks this week because of Bedard. The Hawks didn't take back money in any of their trades. It was player after player after player out the door. That was the entire thing. Any of these teams down around the the bottom of the standings, like there were fire sales just to move off players and get rid of contracts. The Canucks were the only team sort of among the bottom feeders that took on a salary like they did in Anthony Bavillier, who was fine. Like he came in and he... You know, he was better for the Canucks than he had been for the Islanders for much of the season, but better than Horvat, really. <laughs> but ultimately, um, you know, he's on their payroll now, and he's part of this number that gets them up over the the bar for the time being. So, um, 
it's going to be a challenge. And as I said, they've been trying for a year. You know, they, it's been their stated goal since day one of Jim Rutherford talking about the cap cushion. Well, you know, he tells that to the media here in Vancouver and through the media, it's to the fan base. But guess what? It's to the rest of the National Hockey League, although the rest of the NHL already knows. They, they've got access to information. Everybody knows that the Canucks are handcuffed. And that just makes it that much tougher then. Uh, you are not dealing from a position of strength. And, and I think the real danger in all of this is they've got six weeks now. The draft lottery has established the positions. And so now it's kind of this six-week run-up to the draft in Nashville. I'm sure Patrick Alvin is trying. I mean, Frank Sarelli reported that he's making the phone calls and trying to find out the costs of moving off some of these players. Well, I assume that he's made those calls in the past as well. Like, that's his job as the general manager. I mean, I'm glad to hear that he's picking up the phone, but that's his bare minimum. And that's part of the job description of a, a National Hockey League GM. But I just think with every call, the realization must be hitting home for Patrick Alvin that the only way out of this is they are going to have to attach sweeteners. And and it sucks. And that is the just the cold, hard reality of it. It's unfortunate that, you know, Connor Garland's not a perfect player, but he's a National Hockey Leaguer, but he's basically untradeable because of his contract in a flat cap world. And so the idea of any kind of hockey trade, I don't know. I, I mean, they've had a, a year of trying to go there. They brought the agent of Brock Besser in because they were getting nowhere. They thought maybe the agent could do something. And Besser is still a Vancouver Canuck. And Tyler Myers, we know the stumbling blocks there with his uh, his bonus that's owed to him. So it really feels like Canuck fans better brace for the idea of the Canucks having to part with something to move off any of these contracts. And so that's where I come back to what I said is like, how does this team get better? Like, yeah, you can try to get your financial house in order, and that's a step, but at the same time, you got to put a product on the ice. And I just, I don't know. I mean, unless Patrick Alvin is Harry Houdini, uh, I, I just, I don't know how this group gets markedly better for next season, given the cap constraints that they have. What is the sweeteners that they have? Because well, I look got at the first their, rounder, right? Yeah, the 11th no, overall pick. Yeah. And they got two and, thirds. They don't have a second. And a bunch so, of fourths. Right. So, you know, what's a third rounder? Is that yeah. enough? Uh, and it's a, one of them's a Leaf, so it's like a late third rounder as well. Well, and we saw it took a second rounder to attach to Jason Dickinson, right? Like, <laughs> So just keep that in mind. It's sort of the, the marketplace we're talking about. You know, do you have to go out and acquire a second rounder just to be able to slap it on to a play? Like, you know, now we're talking about like the hoops and barrels and all the gymnastics that they have to do. Uh, but this brings me to this idea that, you know, maybe one of the untapped ways is to trade back in the first round. You know, how different is the player that they'll get at 11 as opposed to a player that they would get at 16 or 21? And if there is a player there that another team really covets, you know, maybe you can move back in the first round and gain some sort of act, asset that then you could turn around and use. Like, I think all these things have to be open to them. Like, because you're right, they don't have their own second rounder. I don't think they should touch that first rounder. But if they get to draft week and they haven't created cap space, like free agency is a few days after the draft this year. Nobody's expecting the Canucks to be terribly active, but you can't go on record and say, oh, we need a third line center if you don't have any money to spend. Like, how are you going to get that third-line center? So well, I think the reality is is that they're probably just going to have to swap for somebody else's what they don't like, what they don't want. Well, right? and that's so, where I've said, like, the idea of trading Brock Besser, finding a team that has another guy making six yeah. mil for one year, and maybe it's a player that another team has soured on, the other team might look and say, hey, change the scenery, Brock Besser, it's two more years at six mil, so it's really a wash this year, but... Perhaps we're getting the better player out of this that is worth the roll of the dice if it's a team that has some salary cap flexibility. Maybe a team like that says, all right, we'll offload a guy. So you're not recognizing any savings in the first year, but you're getting a guy that can play in the National Hockey League, essentially, you know, give you what Brock Besser was giving you. Maybe you can find a third-line center that way who's overpriced somewhere else. And yeah. for a year at the very least, he comes in and plays for the Canucks. Um, and then at least you're getting off the second year of Besser's contract. Like, I wonder if that kind of trade would present itself to the Vancouver Canucks. Mm, I see that kind of trade 
taking away one of those third round picks. If you were going to do that and a team's going to take on that extra year, like they're going to sit there and go, well, we need a sweetener. And I think at that point that that third round pick could be useful. Right. And maybe one of those fours, who knows? But yeah, I think that's really what they have to look at right now is just sort of trying to take on what somebody else doesn't want. The problem though, is the fact that Besser's a winger, right? And you just, at that price, wingers at that price that don't produce, they don't have a whole heck of a lot of value. Right. And this is where I come back. It's funny in sort of my quiet moments, I come back to the fact that as much as people can say, and even this management group can say, ah, we inherited this mess from the previous regime. That's fine. You can say that all you want. But one of the first moves that this management group made a year ago was recommitting to Brock Besser. This contract for Brock Besser is on their watch. This well, Mikheyev too, right? Like, and, and that's to, the other part of that equation yeah. is, in hindsight, this management group would have been way better off thanking Brock Besser for his services and wishing him well and letting him walk. And I, I know for some it's unfathomable to even think of the idea of basically just washing your hands of Brock Besser and walking away. But you have to frame it differently, and it's, yes, you're detaching a player that was a first-round pick and had had some early success, but that would have created $6.5 million in cap space for each of the next three seasons. And so I know that they ultimately, there was compassionate grounds, and they thought that after the struggles of dealing with his father's passing that, you know, he would be free up in his mind to hit the ground running this season, and, and obviously that didn't happen. Um, but it's been an immovable contract. Everybody knows that and nothing really changes this season. Like when you get to this time next year, where there's one year left on the deal, I think maybe there's some teams that would think, yeah, we'll, we'll take a shot on Besser at, you know, one year. If it doesn't work out, it's a gamble and there's uh, 6 million bucks at play, but you know, we'll take a chance. Maybe we can flip him at the deadline, anything like that. But with those, that extra year, and that's the problem with Garland as well. If it was the expiring year of his contract, you'd have a lot easier time trading him, but that's not their reality. And so um, that's where I, I guess I, I just want people to brace themselves that while all these other teams are having fun in the playoffs and the Canucks stated goal will again be to be to the playoffs, but ultimately you have to ask yourself, like, where are they going to get better? How are they going to get better? And you're banking on full health from all of your players. And that never happens either because it's a rough and tumble sport and injuries happen and those types of things. So um, it, it does feel to me now like it's a question, it's a game of chicken. And it's when is this Canucks management group willing to just bite the bullet and say, yeah, it sucks, but this is the only way out for, you know, to move off these contracts is to apply a sweetener. And then to your point, what is the sweetener? What do they have to work with? Is it the first rounder? Does a third rounder do much for you? Do you have to, you know, manipulate the system a little bit to go and find a second round pick that you can attach as a sweetener? Or is it Nils Hoaglander? Is it Vasily Pod Colson? Is it, you know, like, <laughs> that's a lot of hoops if they have to go and acquire it. Uh, it's just, holy, it just, well, let me ask you this then. I'll, I'll have an ask J-Pat here. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think for everything you just laid out there, because these players aren't stupid, they can look at the landscape and understand where things are headed and, you know, the sort of, hurdles that a team has to get over to improve. Do you think that perhaps this might hinder Elias Patterson in an extension? Uh, it's possible. I mean, if he doesn't see any indication that this team is going to be able to, to make significant strides, you know, he doesn't have to rush in anything. Now, the flip side of that is if they put a deal in front of him, you know, a max deal or whatever. And he says, Hey, I can sign off on this and guarantee myself a hundred million dollars. But, but what if, what if there's two years of sort of what they're still in right now, the muck, if yep. you will. Yeah. You know, hey, listen, you know, least, like we need two years to get five in the muck. fall. So that'll be yeah. his 25 and 26 year old seasons. And then it basically you're where Bohorat was that, you know, you put in years of service and got nothing in return and nothing a sniff of the playoffs and all those types of things. So, yeah, I, look, I think it's going to be a difficult negotiation, not just on the dollars and the term and everything else, but yeah, like how do they lay out this plan and this vision that's going to make Elias Pettersson and his camp sit up and yeah, like absolutely, that's give me the pen now. I want to sign. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know. And just to bring the conversation back to Puckpedia and the salary structures that they have posted today. So the Canucks are over the limit. They're the only team. We said that Tampa is within 400 grand. 
if you sort in reverse and look at who's got the most cap space, the New Jersey Devils have the third most cap space. The Devils are in the playoffs. I know that's not going well for them in the second round. But they have established stars already, young stars. This team's just getting started in its competitive window. They add Luke Hughes for these playoffs. They've got Simon Nemich, the second overall pick from last year's draft, hasn't touched the NHL yet, and they've got more salary gap space than all but two teams in the National Hockey League. If you're the Canucks, how do you compete with that? Carolina looks like it's on its way to the Final Four, at the very least, and maybe the Stanley Cup. There are only four teams that have more cap space than the Carolina Hurricanes. And we know that they don't spend to the limit, that they've got some internal salary cap issues, but they have the flexibility that we've seen. Like Max Pacioretty got hurt, and that's unfortunate, but they were there ready to pounce on an incredible player because they had that cap flexibility that the Canucks can only dream of. And, you know, you saw with Seattle and Oliver Bjorkstrand last year. Like, we'll go through that again. There will be teams that are positioned beautifully, that when players get the squeeze and teams can't afford them, you know, they're ready to, hey, you know, for pennies on the dollar. And so all these other teams are going to continue to get better and find way. Like, that's an avenue that is just not available to the Vancouver Canucks. And I come back to this issue of improvement. And you're banking on improvement from within because that's all you can do, really. Again, unless you can pull a rabbit out of the hat here. So, you know, it's not just the top end of the salary scale. Look at the bottom and look at the teams that they've got the wriggle room. They've got the flexibility and they're going to put themselves in position to pounce. New Jersey and Carolina are two of the teams that are still playing in the playoffs and they are two of the best position teams based on the salary cap. And that has to be a concern to the Vancouver Canucks as well. The BC Lions are back in the playoffs and hosting the Calgary Stampeders on Saturday, November 4th at BC Place, kickoff at 3.30 p.m. Looking forward to this one, playoff football, BC Place, the Lions and that offense with Vernon Adams at the controls and all of those weapons he has in his receiving core. And you just think about the atmosphere in that building with the fans behind them, the dome will be rocking, should be a ton of fun. Tickets on sale now at bclions.com and check this out. They start at just 30 bucks. And kids 17 and under can get in for 15. So bring the noise, fill the dome. Rinkwide Vancouver is presented by Bodog. Free casino games, sports, odds, and poker tips. Make a play today. They're playing in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Such a weird postseason right now. Like, just the the dramatic games after one another. Like, you know, New Jersey, that is, gets themselves a W and then gets pasted 6-1 after that. Dallas loses... Big to the Kraken, then they follow it up with a big win over Seattle on the road. I mean, with the Leafs down 0-3 as well, when everybody thought perhaps they were going to be the favorite now after beating Tampa and Boston going out. It's just such a peculiar uh, playoff. But the Canes with a 6-1 win over uh, the Devils, now 3-1 in the series. A five-goal second period, J-Pat, by Carolina. And I know you're going to love this. Two goals from I know. Benzman. Oh, trust me. I've got a wall chart at home. <laughs> no, I don't. People probably think I do. But, but what, no, a cra- I, like, what a crazy postseason, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And Brett Burns uh, finally got his first of the playoffs, and that was a long time coming. Um, I, I always think kind of in reverse. Like, what are the Rangers thinking? The Rangers, you know, they, they bow out to Jersey. Yeah. They couldn't score in four of those games. They fire a coach. And then Carolina is just making it look easy to score goals against the New Jersey Devils, where the Rangers had uh, a devil of a time in that uh, opening round. So, look, we all sleep on Carolina. I, I, they're not the sexiest team, but like, I, I do think Rod Brindamore is one of, if not the best coach in the National Hockey League and just gets complete buy-in. And then you've got guys that, you know, Ajo and Nate Chash are are. Excellent players. I don't know that they're in the star category, but they're close. They're knocking on the door. And then you've got that next layer. And I'm telling you, Jordan Martinuk, the former Vancouver Giant, like he's going off in this series. But even before this series, that guy could play on my team. I, I, I would have him on my team anytime. Like just a really good penalty killer, plays hard, finishes checks, doesn't cut corners, absolute analytics darling. Um, and now he's getting opportunities and he's making the most of them. So yeah, Carolina looks, uh, they're poised to, to move on to the final four. Certainly devils can't seem to get a save right now, which is unfortunate yeah. for them, but it uh, again, speaks to the value of, 
you know, needing goaltending at this time of the season. And then, yeah, I mean, both Dallas and Seattle at times in the series have looked incredible. Both of them have looked flat at times, too. You know, Seattle gets Jared McCann back and uh, does nothing for them. Uh, Dallas got the start they were looking for, built on the lead. Of course, Joe Pavelski scores because that's all that's all he does. Um, and so, you know, you're Dallas. You're feeling good about evening the series, getting it back, wrestling home ice away. But the Kraken have shown they're an incredible team on the road. They're not done. Like, I, I, I'm not ready to write off this Seattle Kraken team, not by a long shot. Mm-hmm. Now, they know that they're going to have to win one more time in Dallas. Just that's the way it is. Um, but they've been one of the best road teams in the National Hockey League all season. So I don't think that that will scare them. It shouldn't be any kind of daunting a task for them to go on the road and get one more win. And if they win game five, then to come on home and an opportunity to punch their ticket to the final four in front of the fans at Climate Pledge, what a night that would be. And, you know, when we talk about trying, like, I don't know, your guess is as good as mine, like Edmonton, Vegas, like how when the Oilers need to respond. If they don't, then probably going to be a pretty short series, but it's just hard to imagine that Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl won't raise their game. And, you know, Dreisaitl was incredible in game two of that series when they needed a response. So you know, I would expect that Edmonton's going to bounce back and find a way to tie this series up. And yeah, I mean, at the outset, I expected that that was going to be a pretty long series, but uh, tonight will be pretty pivotal um, in determining, you know, whether it's going to be over before we thought it would, or if uh, it quite likely will go the distance. All right, that's where my best bet's going tonight. Uh, I've got the Canadian combo tonight. Uh-huh. The Leafs on the money line at minus 115. The Oilers on the money line. Check this out. The Oilers are minus 185 in this game. So put those together in a parlay. That's a plus 188. So I'm looking at that. I, I think the uh, Canadian teams prevail tonight. I think the Leafs are able to extend it. I don't know if they can come back all the way from the dead, but I think they might be able to send it back to Toronto at least tonight. However. I am sort of thinking about hedging a little bit because VGK is at a plus 160, J-Pat. After a 5-1 win in Edmonton to take a 2-1 series lead, they are a plus 160 dog in this one. And I think some of that probably comes down to their goaltending. Mind you, the Oilers, you know, their goaltending wasn't very good the other night, but Aiden Hill is now the guy. You know, if you told me at the outset of the season that Vegas had a chance to get within a win of the Western Conference final with Aiden Hill as their starting goaltender. It's true. <laughs> I would have liked to have known the story that led to this path, but yeah. uh, we all know it. Uh, Jonathan Quick will be the backup apparently. And so, yeah, goaltending, I think uh, it's always in the spotlight, but Joseph Wall, obviously for Toronto, yeah. uh, trying to stave off elimination. And then you've got Aiden Hill stepping into the, the firing line with McDavid and Drysaddle on the other side. I mean, uh, there are certainly easier challenges in hockey than having to face McDavid and Dreisaitl motivated to try to tie that series. So, uh, yeah, kind of, you know, looking forward. I'm going to sit back and watch a lot of hockey here and, uh, you know, we'll see what uh, the games bring. And obviously we'll break it all down on uh, the next edition of Rinkwide Vancouver. That's right. And this has been another edition of Rinkwide Vancouver presented by Bodog for Jeff Patterson. I'm Andrew Watt. Remember, Rinkwide is the show that always goes.